0: Good morning and welcome to Radiotherapy on 3 Triple R, your weekly hour of all things medical and psychological. I'm Dr Autonomy and we have got the full team here today. No one's on holidays, no one's at a conference, no one's working, no one's slept in. We're all here. It's quite depressing really, isn't it? No, it's not depressing at all. Uh, and the team I'm talking about is the lovely Miss Medic, our regular in house GP, Lolly Doc, our emergency room physician. And Dr Malice, our in-house child psychiatrist. So they're all here today and let me tell you what we've got on the show for you. We're going to start the show with a bit of a conversation about violence against health workers in light of the death of Patrick Pritzold-Stegman, but also the advertisements that have been on the TV about ambulance paramedics and violence against them. So uh, I think you know, we we mentioned it briefly on the show last week, but we're going to get into a bit more detail today about violence against health care workers. Uh, And then in terms of bigger segments today, uh, we've got two segments to bring you. The first is going to be from Dr Malice and it's focused on Nadoc week. Uh, We're going to be talking specifically about language and the sensitivities around language, but also what the significance of Nadoc week is. I think we all know that uh, it's happening at the moment and that it happened last week, but I think sometimes we we forget about uh, the significance and, and why it's so important important so we're going to revisit that today with dr malice and then to round out the show miss medic is back with another segment on top tips and today the tips are miss medic's five top tips for traveling with children now, it's a medical take on top tips for travelling with children, so I hear taking iPads is not one of the tips. <laughs> and the other thing that I have on good authority is that we're going to find out once and for all whether Finergan is okay. Uh, Mum, you suggest it all the time to me. Give him some Finergan. Uh So I'm going to find out today from Miss Medic in her top tips whether that is something that we should be doing when travelling with children. <laughs> Uh,
1: mm, Can I just ask, is the the finugan for the child or the parents? (laughs) It's a good
0: question. It's a good question. I
1: prescribe gin
0: for the parents. Yeah, (laughs) it's a combo. It's a
1: cocktail (laughs) prescription.
0: So grab a cup of coffee (laughs) and stick with us as we cover all this and more.
2: Doctor, doctor,
3: give me the news I got.
0: Good morning, good morning. Firstly, let me thank uh, Tim, Thorpe, Tim Thorpe for the beautiful tunes earlier this morning. You know, it's an early start when you get up and you put Triple R on, and Tim Thorpe hasn't even started, but it's a lovely thing when he does start. Um, and thanks to the team at Radio Marinara as well for bringing us through to 10 o'clock. Good morning, team. Hi, Miss Medic. Good morning. Sorry you had such an <laughs> early start. Two year olds, huh? It's just that he's so bright.
2: Absolutely. He's got yeah. that, you know, super active brain that's just wide awake at 4.30 in the morning. And
0: so musical, wanting to sing at the top of his lungs from his cot at 4.30 in the morning.
2: Do you remember when we were going to bed at 4.30 in the morning? It wasn't vaguely. that long
0: ago. Vaguely, vaguely, vaguely. And we could hear the birds. Yeah. And then you'd be off going to Maya for the day and I'd be off to the florist for the day of yeah. work. A, oh, those Aww.
3: are the
2: times. <laughs> Launder <laughs> down memory lane.
3: <laughs> I was... No, I'm not there. Yet. Um, good morning. You were not there. No, no, no. Good morning. I, um, I was not in bed with you guys at 4:30 I mean in the morning. That. Yeah, I was not there. Um, I just had an idea. Actually, I was thinking of maybe patenting at gin and Fenugan. Ginergan.
0: I reckon,
3: ah, I reckon I it'd totally go well.
1: It. I
0: love it. Yeah.
3: Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Excellent. Ooh, yeah, a splash of this and a splash of that. Good morning. <laughs> Good morning,
1: Doctor Malice. I, I'd, I'd actually extend that to go for the low dose, mid dose, and high dose of that combo yeah. with various combinations, depending on the mother, father need, and the child need. <laughs> this yes. is this has got legs. I Ooh. think. Yeah.
0: I don't think we need your segment anymore, Miss Malik. <laughs> <laughs> we're sorted. Pretty much done. i just t- off to patent this instead. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Lolly doc. I, I know. I said before we were going to start the conversation with. Um, to talk about violence against healthcare workers, uh, which we are going to do in just a minute. Uh, But before we get into that, over the emails this week, you mentioned to me that one of the most commonly prescribed medications um, has been linked potentially to early death in an observational study. Um, And I think we need to know more about it before we get into anything else.
3: So this is the group of medications we're talking about are the PPIs or the proton pump inhibitors, and they're medications that Decrease acid secretion in the stomach, um, and they're particularly useful for people who have got reflux or um, acid burn or problems related to the esophagus. Um, PPIs,
0: I've never heard of them. Yeah,
3: well, so they're extremely common, and everyone will know the trade names. For example, Nexium, Somac, um, there's a whole lot of them out there, Um, and they're they're in the top five medications prescribed worldwide. Gosh. Um, Lots of people are prescribed them for short course but have such good results from their acid secretion that they tend to keep on them for life. And what this observational study um, reported, so it was published in um, BMJ, so British Medical Journal Open, so a fairly reputable um, journal. And it's important to recognise that it's an observational retrospective study. In other words, it looks back on data collected and makes associations between... Uh, a data point and an end point. So in this case they found that people who were on PPIs long term had an increased risk of death. Now that's not causation, that's an association. So those people who were on PPIs for longer were more likely to have an earlier death than those people who had been not who were not on PPIs or had them for a shorter course. And this compares to another class of medication which is the H2 antagonist so that's Zantac um, which you can get from the chemist over the counter and that's another acid suppression class of medication and that had no effect. So if nothing else what this journal publication suggests is that we need some further studies just to look at whether there is in fact causation rather than just an association. There could be a whole lot of other reasons including um, obesity so Patients who are overweight are more likely to experience reflux and are more likely to be on proton pump inhibitors and therefore people... ..and and overweight or obesity causes, causes early death... So it might just be related to that. So it's not clear whether it's related to the medications or related to other patient factors.
0: Yeah, so there could be um, a, a totally independent variable that's causing people to be on that medication and and die early. We don't know that it's the medication that's causing it, but certainly worth looking into Correct. further. Yep. So if anyone is listening and they are taking those medications, what's
3: what's your advice? So the, the advice is to have a conversation with their local doctor about um, what they're using those medications for, how long they've been using those those. those medications for and whether they need to continue those medications in some cases and in many cases continuing the medication is is the recommended course and so I'm not trying to create a a scaremonger campaign but it's certainly worth having a conversation with your local doctor about whether you need to continue the medication.
2: Yeah and I think that it's just an important reminder that sometimes we can get very um, complacent about the medications that, that are used very commonly and we assume oh they're fine you know to take but The objective should always be to be on a medication at the lowest effective dose for the shortest duration. And so it's just important to always have that in mind that even though these medications that we use are largely considered to be safe, they still can have some some impact that perhaps we're not aware of as yet. So just have those principles in mind of lowest possible effective dose for the shortest duration is important.
0: <laughs> Whenever I smother my son's eczema in cortisone cream, um, my husband says to me, "You know, lowest possible dose, just smallest amount, Possible, you know, there's no point in putting heaps and heaps. And I always have this reaction of why, like, what does it matter? But it's across the board. It's a good thing to remember, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely, except
3: yeah. for Janurgan, which, which <laughs> is the highest <laughs> possible dose. For who cares what the effect is?
0: If you didn't hear the beginning of the show, stay tuned, and we will explain what Lolly Doc is talking about. <laughs> so, uh, in the interest of time, can we move on? Actually, to the conversation about violence against healthcare workers. Uh, Lolly Doctor, do you want to kind of lead us into this?
3: Sure. So uh, this is a particularly sad um, topic for me personally, but also for many of the people I work with. And I know that the community in general has been particularly affected by this. So at the end of May, 30th of May, um, Patrick Pritzwald-Stegman, who's a cardiothoracic surgeon um, at a few large hospitals in Melbourne. Uh, was allegedly assaulted outside of uh, the hospital foyer whilst trying to stop a patient from smoking uh, in the foyer and was punched to the head, uh, collapsed, had a bleed in his brain and um, was rushed to the Alfred Intensive Care Unit where he remained for about 30 days uh, on some life support and died on the 28th of June um, when it was um, found that really continuing any life support was was futile. So he was a 41-year-old man with two kids and a wife and um, incredibly saddened. And, and, and the beginning, really, of his um, career, uh, I know some of his patients and he was well-loved and respected and respected by his colleagues, so it was particularly sad. The thing I think that um, this topic raises is violence against healthcare workers and it's not just doctors and nurses, it includes all healthcare workers. So people who work in aged care facilities, paramedics, um, it even extends, I think, to non-healthcare workers as well, the police and fireies And, and um, it's extraordinary. Working in an emergency department, as I do, I, my kids just asked me, in fact, this week when they saw one of the ads, and we'll get to the ads in a moment, mm-hmm. uh, have I ever been abused or, or yelled at at work? And I would get yelled at at work at least once a week, if not once a day. Um, and it doesn't include just physical violence. We're talking about... Uh, verbal abuse. We're talking about um, sense of fear or of physical proximity. So people who are aggressive and stand over you. Um, the use of language, threats, um, and not just the physical assault. I know paramedics who have tried to resuscitate a patient and have had their sons physically assault them to try and uh, not let that happen. So this is this is a very real problem. And I think the interesting thing about this is if you remember in 2014 uh, there was a neurosurgeon at Footscray Hospital, Dr. Wong, who was stabbed um, as he was leaving hospital by one of his old, uh, old ex patients who um, was agri- felt aggrieved and so stabbed the doctor and he's alive and well and practicing now, which is terrific. Um, but there wasn't, although there was community outrage at that time, there didn't seem to be a lasting. Uh, I guess, campaign. And this is what I think what's very interesting about this case is that it really has triggered significant momentum and community outrage with an appropriate and associated government response, which includes these ads.
0: I, I'm quite lost for words as I think about that case and as I kind of sit and, and grapple with the frequency of, of when this is happening across the board... I guess the first thing that comes into my mind is of course violence perpetrated against, you know, other people is is never okay. Why are we focusing on healthcare professionals and and what is it about you know this industry that we're all part of that I guess increases our exposure to it, increases our risk or perhaps on the other side of the coin has has let us go for so long without really talking about this and doing something about it and sort of accepting it as a a normal part of our profession?
3: You're asking a very complicated question. I think this runs a gamut of, of, of issues. So there's no doubt that there are the vulnerable, unwell... Uh, patient or person who are violent as a, as a result of their illness that they're suffering. So that might actually be a delirium or or an illness in the elderly, for example, and they can sometimes become violent. And that's a, a separate mm. issue, but still, it's a vi- it's a violence against healthcare workers. All through to um, drug affected patients who, uh, once they're no longer drug affected, are actually mortified by the fact that they've behaved in that way. Uh, through to people who are just nasty people and and so that's the difficulty is it runs that sort of spectrum in terms of why we focus on healthcare workers I think healthcare workers by and large go to work to care for their community, they're exposed to many people uh, over the course of their shift uh, or their work so it's not like you or I walking down the street, for example, who sees, you know, one or two people in their travels, we, we're constantly turning over people that we're seeing and so I think our risk is, is greater and we're in a field where we're trying to help people and so it becomes almost heightened, I guess, that sense of, of unfairness, if you like, that, um, that this, is, this is happening. But you're right, I think violence in general is the problem rather than mm-hmm. necessarily against healthcare workers.
1: Dr Malice. I think that's uh, the running of a gamut of issues is certainly uh, naming the enormity of the problem. The other dimension, leaving for one moment the clientele. On the so called industry side, in days gone by, this was not called a healthcare industry, it was a vocation. And so the normal regulations that went to workers in industry, the trade union movement basically, the medical health industry did not come under union protection because it was actually a different sort of industry. Uh, In fact, it wasn't an industry. And we used to call the people we were in relationship with as patients And it was a patient relationship. Now it has become a client. And so on both sides, there's been a radical shift, although it's taken over 20, 30, 40 years of language use, that we're no longer treating patients but clients. And eventually the medical and healthcare profession is waking up that we are deserving of as many protections as any other industry. So we're actually starting from behind the eight ball.
0: Mm. What are the advertisements that uh, you've seen? I've seen a couple of uh, ones that are about ambulance paramedics mm-hmm. and, um, you know, about them going to work and, and you've probably seen them on the TV uh, and, you know, they're going to work to care for people and that this is the choice that they've made based on their values and that essentially they, they deserve better. And you
3: know. So, as you know, uh, health... Uh, particularly hospitals, but paramedic services are state-based. And so this is a state-based campaign uh, driven by WorkSafe and is funded by the government. And it shows... I think there are three ads. Um, It shows an aged care nurse... Um, she's not aged but the people she cares for are (laughs) aged Um, serving a meal in an aged care facility and um, she's the the tray's flipped over in anger by the son of uh, the patient Uh, there's another ad which shows a nurse being spat on by a family member and there's uh, the one the paramedic one who's trying to care for a patient on the ground who gets punched by uh, a family member. Uh, They're quite um, not so much graphic, but they're very, very direct. Um, and I think that's important. It's a little bit of the style of the road traffic accident mm. campaigns. That's what I felt when I watched it. Um, and I think that's kind of what we need to really bring home the message. And I, the tagline is, it's never okay.
2: Mm. And I think coming back to, like, why why has this been able to go on... Um, I think, in part, yes, it's that we are seeing more violence in general in our community, um, and why that is, you know, gosh, that you know, that's the million-dollar question, and what we can do about it. Again, you know, who, know, who knows exactly how what it's going to take? us I, I assume, a million small little steps in the right direction. Um, but I also think there's been something within the healthcare uh, profession to say that. Uh, we haven't always been putting our safety first and we need to, but this sort of this strong intent to always help sometimes meant that our own safety was compromised. And I always tell junior medical, medical staff. So in my position as a GP of we're very vulnerable because the door gets closed and you are by yourself with a patient. Um, And, you know we have systems in place to manage that, like duress alarms, etc. but I always teach my registrars that are in training about you know about putting their their own safety first and not. Not sort of ignoring that gut feeling that something's not quite right here, but actually listening to it and taking appropriate steps, even if that means uh, compromising some of what you think is going to be providing the best care. So, for instance, you know, if you're getting the vibe that something's not quite right with this patient as you take them down to your room, don't close your door. Just as a first instance, you know, we always think about uh, confidentiality and the doctor-patient relationship. But really, you have you cannot? You're no good to someone if you're very worried about your own safety. So I always encourage them to put their own safety first. But I think we've been slow to do that in medicine.
3: I think the I, I think you make a good point, Miss Medic. And the, the 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 issue here is not the known patient. So we're not talking about the patient that's being brought in by the police, for example, agitated. We're talking about the unknown patient, the patient who seems to be fine but then escalates and creates either a verbal issue um, or or a violence issue. And I think what we've missed the boat on is the cumulative effect of verbal abuse over a significant period of time. Mm -hmm. So nurse retention rates in Australia, in fact, worldwide, are very low. um, And I suspect in part... That is because of not just the physical gruelling work that nurses do, but also that constant sense of lack of appreciation, but also stress from um, that hidden abuse. You know, it's the the ill word or it's the anger, which is just built up over a long period of time. It is, in a sense, uh, very similar to... Abuse, for example, to a child from a parent who's un- unwell or or it seems very similar to me. And so maybe that's the issue, is that we need a more society-focused violence campaign, which includes all things, including, for example, domestic violence, child abuse and, and abuse against healthcare workers.
1: I was, Dr Malice. I think that is actually one of the great advances in our culture in the last 10 years, that it is a community-based response that we see nationally, for example, with the Royal Commission into institutionalised abuse of uh, children, that something that has gone on for over 100 years in Western society, as as the records now show, initially that was not acceptable to acknowledge, hence the hiddenness of it. Mm -hmm. It's not that it was hidden, it was we were not ready as a culture to recognise it. And hence, there's a tremendous dislocation now between currently, as we live, in the wider community between those who do recognise abuse and trauma for what it is, a la the Royal Commission trying to advance the awareness in culture, and those naysayers who say, no, 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 this is all just something that was historical. It is something that goes on right in our, as you say, Lolly Doc, in our daily practice, but we have been so, let's say, conditioned to inherit the attitude in the healthcare profession that we're just going to care no matter what. And I think this is uh, the absolute critical point that you've mentioned, that we have to look after our safety first, which is not selfishness. We are no good to anybody if we're treating our worry in a consultation when someone else is needing our full attention we cannot give our full attention if we're under threat that's just not a conceivable uh, possibility so if our community wishes the best protection for their best care we have to take responsibility to insist on our safety that's not our patient's job that's our professional mandate Mm. And that's, in fact, what is now happening. It was discussed at the Royal Australian New Zealand College of Psychiatrists uh, annual meeting in Adelaide in May, the same month when this tragedy happened with our colleague, the surgeon. Uh, So this is really uh, a community and social awareness raising. And the advertisements on television are part of that process. And I think you know, we just have to welcome this as opening our eyes to something that for 100 years we didn't want to look at.
0: And the question will be, you know, do things change as a consequence of this? What's it going to take? Because as we've said, we've had incidents in the past and and not enough has been done and not enough has changed. So, Well,
1: if we take a, 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 in a way a trivial but a serious example, sports is regarded as sports. But in the last few weeks, the AFL in in Victoria certainly has taken a very strong line on violence on the field, which in the past was said, oh, you just get bopped on the head, you get a bit of concussion, you're in hospital for a few weeks, and the other guy gets off for two or three weeks. Lifetime ban. Now, this is something that is not something that gets triggered often. So we are seeing it across the board, and Mm. sport has been sacred, now when the sports commissioners come out and say this is no longer acceptable and what, the question is what can we do about it, it's being done. You mm. ban people for life.
0: You're listening to Radiotherapy on 3RRR and we've been talking about violence against healthcare workers. We're going to leave that conversation there but I suspect we'll be coming back to it time and time again. Uh, we're going to go to a quick track and then we're going to come back with a segment about NADOC week and significance around language. Uh, we have been talking mostly about violence against healthcare workers this morning and we're going to change tack to another, um, I guess, heavy and significant topic, but it's, it's in keeping with the emotional tone that we've started, I think. Uh, we're going to talk about NADOC week and the significance of it, parts we might have forgotten and uh, sensitivities around language. So, Dr Malice.
1: Well, thank you. But before we uh, segue into it, I think the emotional sensitivities that we've been discussing and even in the break while the music was on, we've had really quite a passionate discussion here about some of the possible um, mechanisms or causes or motivations of why this violence in um, in the community is raising across the board. And if I may quote uh, Ken from uh, the usual position of being the panellist offered the most profound insight that we are working on an assumption that historically may be totally out of date that is that the so-called experts, be they politicians academics, health workers scientists and uh, virtually any major institution the relationship of the civic relationship between the community members, the constituents, the voters uh, and their families and children who are non-voters and the civic relationship with the various institutions is dramatically changed over the last 50 years. And we see this also expressed in the type of voting in the democratic countries that we've seen in the last two years, Mm. the US with Trump election, Brexit, um, the most recent one in the UK. So the traditions, even of the most deeply entrenched value system, which is embodied in our political systems, has been radically turned on its head so that we cannot predict even a an election that was supposed to be unlosable has to be reconsidered
0: mm.
1: and that, that what we see, as Ken said, was the manifestation in this tragedy in the Box Hill uh, incident, the uh, so-called patient, the so-called expert doctor, but an authority figure. And I think this is something we should keep in mind as we now segue into the next segment, which is NADOC week. Now, usually we have commemoration days. Uh, Australia day is not a week of celebration, it's a day. So I thought we'd first start off with what is NAIDOC? What is the week? A little bit of its history because it has a hundred year background. And then the theme of the week that language matters. Now, what's that got to do with Nadoc week? And so I thought we'd just immerse ourselves a little bit into it. And I must confess, I'm on a learning curve with this. So please, if there are any callers, uh, find or even panel, if I'm making errors of judgment or emphasis, please do pull me up on it. I admit this is a learning curve. But first of all, what does Nadoc actually stand for? It's the National Aborigines and Islanders Day observance committee so obviously the question comes up how did such a committee come about when we know that the aboriginal and torres strait islanders communities have got hundreds of languages and dialects scattered around one of the vastest continents in the world how do we get consensus (laughs) Uh, the answer is well not easily But if we appreciate the background of this 100 year movement, then we might have a little bit more empathy and sensitivity for the struggles that went on in the NAIDOC week, as we as a country face another referendum on the civil rights and the sovereignty of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island communities. So back to 100 years ago, 1920s, And it's not known that between the wars, First World War and Second World War in the last century, Australia was one of the first countries that had a massive civic national rights movement. We're all familiar with America in the 60s and 70s with their movements, but, I mean, it was a wake-up call for me that we in Australia already had this movement in the 1930s before the Second World War. At that time, a gentleman called William Cooper, who was the founder of the Australian Aboriginal League, was instrumental in galvanising and focusing the rights of Aboriginal people at that time, which, of course, had to be galvanised because we didn't even count Aboriginal people as people. They weren't in our census. they weren't uh, given the right to vote and so on so if we jump ahead now almost 50 years to 1967 a landmark year in australia and now looking back that's 50 years ago 2017 back to 1967 Mm. that was the referendum where australians voted and agreed of course that aboriginal people should be counted now Just imagine the language at that time if you don't even have the right to be counted as a human being and you live here, not just live here, but you're the Indigenous population. Contrast this with the Maori population in New Zealand and, of course, they were written into the constitution right at the beginning of federation in New Zealand and to this day you have bi-national anthems the New Zealand Maori anthem uh, in their own native language is actually sung at our Royal Australian New Zealand College of Psychiatrists each year. And this year, given that it was around May, when I'll come to why May is so significant this year for Uluru and so on, it was like... A, 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 I was hit on the head, like, wake up. What, what is happening? That here is a bicultural country with bicultural national anthem... Here we are with a single national anthem. Now, I'm not advocating revolution here. Please don't misunderstand. I'm just saying I notice the contrast. Why such a contrast? That remains to be answered. However, we've moved on. And so from those 1920s when initially the Aboriginal movement wanted a national day of mourning, just grief expressed, recognised if we want a parallel, something like Anzac Day, a day of commemorative mourning at a national level. That was held in the January week around Australia Day initially. By the post-Second World War time, it was moved to July as the first Sunday in July, and we're coming here now into modern history. It was then a one-day commemoration, but also added to with a celebration, which is a tremendous sh- cultural shift, that you're not just remembering some sad, tragic, indeed genocidal events, but you're also celebrating the positive of the culture. Now, from that first Sunday in July, and today we are actually on the, is it the 9th of, yes, 9th of July, it's the second Sunday, hence we have moved to the whole week being NADOC week. From the first Sunday and today, the second Sunday is officially the ending of NADOC week celebrations and commemoration. Now, leaving that as the historical background, let's move to the language because that's the theme this year language is important. Now, of course, we know language is important. So, what's the big deal? Well, if you've got a hundred or so languages plus, with many more dialects plus, you've got a nomadic people plus scattered through a continent as brilliant and beautiful as Australia is, then how do you actually communicate? I mean, it's like going to Europe, which has only got a dozen or so languages with one language and hoping to get around the whole of Europe. You need some translation. Now, we don't have that because the very language of the culture has been stripped. One example... The word, if anyone knows the word here on the panel, I'd love to hear your take on it. It's called Jukurpa. Jukurpa, which translates as anyone?
3: Uh, is that dreaming or...? Yes. Right. Oh,
1: yes. Could we have an expansion on what the issue there is?
3: Uh, no. Well, <laughs> I guess, I guess. look, I'm, I'm not Indigenous and I, I don't... Proclaim to be an expert, but I suspect every um, every Indigenous Australians group would have a different take on their dreaming. I absolutely.
1: imagine absolutely, absolutely. Not only do they have a different take, they also have different words for it. So in artworks where you have dreaming scenes with the pointed drawings that we are more familiar with as the Indigenous art. That is different for every one of the subcultures, the micro-environments. And to take a step back, the very translation of the word dreaming is a misnomer. It's the closest that the early anthropologists who studied American, Australian Aboriginal culture, it was the closest approximation and it gained traction in the academic world. But it is not actually the English equivalent of dreaming. It's a mistranslation that's been perpetuated. Much like country, the other very commonly used word, that is again a translation to the relationship between the people and the land. Now, even as I say it, a relationship between the culture and the land, I think most of us understand those as categories of identity. I, the person, have a relationship with land, the soil. In the Indigenous culture, this is totally missing the point. The relationship between the Aboriginal peoples and the land, the country, is an ongoing, everlasting, infinite, daily experience. It's not a historic event. It is where they know where the waterholes are, essential for survival, it is how they pass on the tradition of knowledge of the land to the next generation from the elders. So it is intimately bound up with their identity, and the identity is inseparable from their land culture. This is something that we have to really translate into a, another framework, which we'd almost call it's transcendent, it's spiritual.
0: You're listening to Radiotherapy on 3RRR and we're talking about the significance of Nadoc week. Lollydoc.
3: Essentially, Malice, what you're describing is language being a flag post for culture, aren't you? So, as you lose languages or lose language or understanding of language, you lose an understanding of the culture that's associated with that language. And if I can maybe draw an analogy, I remember going to a museum and I've been trying to pick my brain, it's in Australia, it might be the National Museum in Canberra, I'm not sure, but they have recordings in, in an aim to, um, I guess, maintain um, Indigenous culture. They've tried to record uh, and translate as best as possible the multiple languages around Australia. Much the same way as Holocaust survivors have taped their experience um, in the Holocaust Museum, this has been uh, another project which in my mind is similar in the sense that it's trying to preserve culture. And when you talk about a contrast to New Zealand, for example, their language is maintained throughout schooling, throughout road signs... Uh, in um, communication, in business, in cultural events like sport and art. And so I think that's the issue, isn't it, is language is that flag post for, for culture and health.
1: Absolutely. Absol- that's nailed it. Because really, what are we even doing on this panel? We're using language to communicate. And in this communication, we are transmitting our culture. Now, this is our language, our culture. So as you say, Lolly Doc, if you do not have the testimonies of the people who still remember the culture and the link with the Holocaust has many resonances of people giving testimony of their past experience. Now, by virtue of this week, what I would suggest that all of us in Australia have become perhaps unintentionally witnesses to this historic week that we are now putting primacy on language is important, not just for the Aboriginal communities, but for all of us, because we are living in relationships with each other. And yes, could we see one day road signs in bilingual, in Canada, French and English, bilingual. What about thinking about language and its importance in our own culture?
3: When it comes to health, and I guess this is a show about medicine and health and mental health, it seems to me that if you can't acknowledge a culture, you can't make inroads into health um, changes and the whole closing the gap um, interventions can't actually be successful unless you deal with those. Mm
1: -hmm. Now, one of the reasons it can't be is because losing one's language is actually a traumatic experience. If we think at the most micro level, anyone who's tragically unfortunate enough to have a stroke and affects the side of their brain where they lose language, for all intents and purposes, their identity at that moment changes. They become totally dependent, as it were, subverbal or preverbal, and they cannot communicate their most fundamental daily needs. Now, if we translate that on a national level, of a whole culture losing their language. Health, which unfortunately we know from statistics of infant mortality, children at risk, number of suicides, early death, longevity, perinatal... uh, The list goes endless. The number of the higher risk for the Aboriginal uh, Torres Strait Islanders community is incomparably worse to the national standard... Now, is it as basic, in one sense simple, that they've lost their language? Mm.
0: Dr. Malice, is there anything in particular that you want to leave us with as we kind of sit with the significance of NAIDOC Week? I guess, for me, something that comes to mind in hearing you speak about this today is the importance, if nothing else, of, of taking this week every year to actually stop and sit and listen and witness and, and open our minds and and remind ourselves of how important this stuff is and, and how it can get buried amongst, you know, all the other priorities and, and day-to-day uh, politics. But to, to open our minds and, and sit and stop and witness um, for this one week and sort of recalibrate as we then go on for the next year.
1: Now in fact within this next coming phase the practical expression of all that I've tried to highlight is the Uluru Statement from the Heart which came out of the meeting in May from the national meeting from this community regarding the forthcoming referendum about sovereignty and so the practical thing we can take out of this that when the day of referendum comes, and it will come, we be aware of what it is that we're actually voting for. That is the most practical expression that I could recommend to all of... Certainly take on myself and to all our listeners.
0: Doc.
3: One of the most uh, life-changing books that I've read in the last year is a book called It's Our Country. And it's essentially a... Um, uh, multi-chapter short piece essays by various indigenous leaders in our community about why there should be meaningful constitutional recognition and reform mm. They're very bite-sized reading pieces they range a gamut of of uh, opinions uh, from very um, strong strongly worded opinions through to more moderate conservative opinions it's a fascinating reading and i highly recommend it it's, so our, it's, country. it's our country edited by Megan Davis and Marshall Langton
0: Thank you. Uh, you're listening to Radiotherapy on 3RRR. We've been talking about some fairly heavy topics, actually, significant important ones. We've been talking about NADOC Week and we've also been talking about violence against healthcare workers. But we're going to round out the hour with something... I mean, I'm suspecting it's a bit more lighthearted and fun, but perhaps I should have looked at the content before I said that. So... Miss it's Medic, your top five tips on travelling with kids.
3: Can I well, guess, can I guess, can I guess? I want to guess the top, <laughs> oh the, the my top goodness. one. Right. So the top one is medically based All oh right. Oh, yeah, right. My top you? one was don't take them. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> don't do it. Your kids are making horrible gestures at you they from
2: are, the They are, they're group. looking through the
3: window. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Uh, no, he says looks like as he's so. just come back glowing from a holiday. Yeah, yeah. and like, yeah. I
2: think Lolly Dog probably did experience that travelling with kids can be great and I think, Some people are very put off by it, thinking, oh, my God, just how much effort does it take to get children out of the house, let alone, like, you know into a car and on a road trip or on a plane or overseas, like it can be quite daunting. But I'm a big believer for travelling with children. Um, Part of that's necessity. I have my husband's family's overseas, so we've had to do it from our Mm. kids being very young. But I've also, I think, would always want to travel because I love to do it and I think it's great family time and great for children to see how other people live. Um, So I thought, and it is school holidays, so perhaps you're just back from a trip or you've got one planning or you're just realising that you need to desperately plan one for the next school holidays because you can't bear another school holidays at at staying at home uh, and particularly in these winter months. Um, So I thought I would just do my top tips for travelling with children. So obviously from a medical perspective, number one, you all know that I love my vaccines. So I... (laughs) advocate seeing your GP well in advance of your planned trip if you are planning going somewhere international in particular um, to plan for some travel vaccines so uh, so I think sometimes people we can forget that These vaccines are available to children as well. So things like hepatitis A and typhoid are fairly routine uh, travel vaccines for travelling to, in particular, Asian countries. Hepatitis A available for children from 12 months of age, typhoid from the age of three. Also important to be up to date with your regular vaccines. We know that in different parts of the world they have different rates of infectious diseases compared to... To hear in Australia, so for instance, being sure that you're up to date with your MMR, and in some cases, we which is the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine routinely given at 12 months but if you were to be traveling to a country with endemic measles um, you could bring that that would be a justification to bring a vaccine forward to the age of nine months if you were traveling with an infant so, so you
0: can actually have them earlier than otherwise depending on where you're going
2: depending on where you're going depending on the risk in that country and the age of the kids so this is why it's really important to go see a GP and have this conversation good to know the other thing is don't forget the flu vaccine influenza is actually our most common travel infection Um, and influenza um, can really put a massive dampener on a holiday and also (laughs) it can be very serious is very serious illness so available for children from the age of six months so there you go vaccines Okay, number 2. This is going to be in terms of jet lag. So, if you're travelling overseas, I think lots of parents worry about the impact that this that jet lag could have on their children's sleep. Um, and this can be really tough. So my general tips are to adapt to the new time zone as soon as possible. So in terms of... <laughs> Sounds great. Well, <laughs> How it can, do you do it? <laughs> well, I will take on the new time zone, I guess, is probably a better way to put it. So that means try to avoid, like, if you arrive at 7 o'clock in the morning, don't go to bed for five hours. Oh,
0: such willpower. You
2: need to stay awake <laughs> and try to get into the routine as quickly as possible. That's going to be best for you. Mm. Lots of sunlight exposure during the daylight hours of the new destination um, really important for setting that body clock and there is some evidence for use of melatonin so as on a prescription so melatonin is our natural uh, hormone that regulates sleep-wake cycles and now it's becoming increasingly common for people to take melatonin in a in a tablet or a liquid form in order to try and get their bodies into the new sleep-wake cycle. So this is even used in children, um, but on a prescription. So worth a discussion with mm-hmm. your GP or paediatrician. So sometimes it's fairly... Some GPs may not be doing this routinely, but with consultation with a paediatrician who can advise them on dosing, I think most GPs could take care of that for you. Um, so,
0: not Phenurgan, but melatonin. With no, a so melatonin for
2: jet lag. Yeah. I'm talking about. So, I'll, I, I'll, my, my, third, my third <laughs> tip was going to be about managing long haul flights. And I think this is where Phenurgan <laughs> often gets brought up, and that you can just zonk your kids out on the flight and therefore not. What is histamine? So it's an antihistamine, right. and it has sedating properties. Oh. So that's what it's used for. Um, and my general rule of thumb is: don't do it. <laughs> you do not want. Me. Well, uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely not appropriate in the under twos, and I think that's the class that people most want to use it in is in the under twos, and that's it's actually inappropriate because it can cause. For well, one, it can cause... Because it sedates the child, it can actually slow and decrease their breathing. And when you're at altitude, you're potentially not taking on the, as much oxygen anyway. And certainly you don't want your child to have problems breathing when you're, you know, thousands of feet in the air where there's not good medical care yep, for you. I'm so I already think that that's probably not the best call. The other thing is that... You don't know whether it's going to have the desired effect and there's some evidence that some kids get very sparked up by something. <laughs> so you don't want to be that parent.
3: The other thing is actually... Or the it, person it, sitting next
2: to them Or the the that person.
3: It doesn't give you a natural sleep. So it doesn't put you in the right cycles of sleep at the right time. Yeah, so and it's so not going it, to help with so jet lag. So it actually doesn't help you, although it might help you in the short term over those eight hours of playing flight, it's going to make things much worse on your holiday.
2: Yeah, so I'd say don't do it. Look, I, my, my advice is managing sleep on a flight or well, managing long-haul flights is if you can, fly at night with your kids, so your nighttime. and I've always used the, um, the sort of engaging with the normal bedtime routine as much as possible so, you know, putting little bub into their sleeping bag, giving them their bedtime story and that sort of thing is very helpful in giving those very strong sleep cues to children Mm. and that would probably be my general advice in terms of other things on flights um ears so number four um kids can get into lots of problems with their ears on the flight so if it's an infant swallowing so feeding on a flight will help them clear that sort of Pressure build up behind the eardrums and make them more comfortable. So, feed or give them something to suck or chew as age appropriate. And finally, number five, in the interest of time, I'm going to rattle through this. Um, I advise taking a pretty good travel kit with you with some medications that you might need, including paracetamol, good rehydration solution. Children are very prone to becoming quite dehydrated and unwell if they develop a diarrheal illness or a gastro sort of bug while travelling. So be ready to have some good rehydration on hand and perhaps an anti which is an anti-vomiting medication. I generally think if you can manage vomiting, you can get fluid on board and everything is much easier in the context have of a gastro your
0: hand luggage not just you <laughs> exactly yeah. have that stuff in your hand luggage and that's my tips there you have it, Miss Medic's top five tips for travelling with kids. No time for all our funny stories about actual experiences of travelling with kids, but perhaps we can do that next time. Thank you, Kent, for pushing the button so seamlessly. Thank you, Dr Malice Lolly Doc, and Miss Medic. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.